Each fall, there is a, a traffic jam on I-35 headed south from Oklahoma. And um, what do they call that? The Red River Rivalry or the Red River Challenge or Shootout? Well, there's a lot of names for it. I don't, we have to call it Shootout here in church and all, but <laughs> there's a rivalry for sure between, uh, between Texas and OU. And the Cotton Bowl is, you know, becomes gorged and there's this, well, anyway, there's an, a similar rivalry, I'm told, uh, in Kentucky between the universities of Louis, Louisville and Kentucky. Charlotte, does that still go on? Absolutely. Absolutely go Okay. Well, I heard a story about this, uh, this rivalry uh, in Kentucky, and I, I just wonder if it's true. Whether or not it's true, it's a great story. Um, they call the, that rivalry, or when they have the games together, one of the, they call them dream games, you know, one of the dream games. And there was an elderly woman that was sitting all by herself with an empty seat next to her at this packed-out game. And the guy sitting on the other side of the empty seat leaned over and said, you know, I, I rarely see an empty seat in this arena, especially at a dream game. And the woman went on to say, well, you know, she and her husband had had, her late husband had had, had tickets, season tickets, you know, 28 years, and they never missed, you know, a game. And so he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, but, you know, couldn't you find a, a family relative or a friend to bring to have your husband's seat? And she says, oh, no, that'd be impossible. They're all at my husband's funeral. <laughs> Now here's a woman who's devoted, but some would say maybe to the wrong things. Very devoted, but possibly to the wrong things. Uh, Dr. Toussaint often says when he starts with a joke, you know, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about today. And I guess in a way it doesn't, but uh, I think we, as we go through we'll find out this misplaced devotion can be very relevant to our walks with Jesus Christ. So if you would turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. And we're going to talk about something that I promise you is relevant to you as a Christian. In fact, it is essential to you as a Christian. Let me ask you a question. Compare with compare how you drive now to how you drive or you drove when you first when you were getting tested for your driver's license. Can you remember when you were getting your driver's license test? I mean the very first one. I say the first one, it's like the only one. I think they should make make us take driver's tests like every ten years or something, because there's some people on the road that should not be on the road. <laughs> And I think a driver's test would take care of that. But anyway, the first one, you remember that? First driver's test? I remember my first driver's test. I had not one minute of training for it. In fact, my mom and I went up there and, and I got what they called back then a hardship license. Usually you give, get your license when you're 16, but I got mine when I was 15. And we went up there almost on a whim. 
she said, hey, you want to just go ahead and take your driver's test? And I thought, sure. I mean, the worst I can do is fail. So I get in the seat, and this lady hops in. No, it was a man. A man hops in next to me and begins to you know, tell me all these things to do. And, you know, I did fairly well until we got to parallel parking. And that's not really something you can wing. You know, you've got you've to practice that to get it right. Well, I didn't get it right. And I still remember the look on, on this guy's face. I thought, you know, I have no idea how to parallel park. I'm just going to go for it. So I turned the wheel, you know, gave it some gas, and I ended up really, I think I messed up a few cones trying to get in that thing. And I remember the look on the, on the man's face. He turned with me, and a look that I could only describe as abject horror. <laughs> And then he didn't say anything. He just gave me that look and then turned down and scribbled something on his, on his little pad. Well, I passed. Without one moment's training in driving, I passed. And I think that's true with a lot of people that are on the road. Well, let me, let me just say this. <laughs> Compare how you drove with your first test to how you drive now. What's the difference? Obviously, you're more experienced now. But you were much more careful in that moment that you were uh, having the test because you were being evaluated. If you are being evaluated, you are much more careful about doing something. Um, I remember when I graduated from the University of North Texas, or back then it was North Texas State University, taking what they, what they called the guitar barrier. They don't call it like the, the guitar celebration or something. They called it the barrier. And if you didn't get past the barrier, then you didn't graduate. Same with, uh, with piano and various other things. There, there's this moment of evaluation where the heat is on. And if you don't perform just right, then you know they fail you or, or whatever. Um, when you're driving down the road and you see a policeman, you don't even have to be speeding. You put your brakes on because you're being evaluated, or at least you fear that you are. There's something about knowing or the possibility that you are being evaluated that causes you to act completely different. As a kid with parents, if you're being evaluated, you, you act just right. But when the parents leave, you do what you want to do. If there's no evaluation, if there's no accountability, then you kind of just do what you want to do. If you know you're going to be evaluated, you're going to act differently. Well, here's the thing. In our Christian lives, in our walks with God on earth, we are being evaluated. Now, we don't necessarily see the, the guy with the clipboard sitting next to us. We don't see the parent looking at us and eyeing us from the other side of the room. We don't have somebody elbowing us sitting next to us in church. But we're being evaluated. And I want to talk to you just a little bit today about that evaluation and in some sense put you at ease. Because how many evaluations do you sit under that you're at ease? Most of the time I think we're pretty stressed. If we know we're being evaluated, we're being stressed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us in one verse the evaluation that we can look forward to. 2 Corinthians 5, look down at verse 10. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that 
Each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You hear the word judgment, judgment seat of Christ. You hear the word judgment day. You think about the great big day at the end of time. And I think a lot of folks, when they think about the judgment of God to come, they think that there's just one big great judgment to come. The reality is the Bible talks about at least seven judgments in the Bible. Uh, there's several uh, more to come, and this is one of them. This judgment, though, for the Christian, the judgment, God's judgment of our sin took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross. So the judgment for your sin has already been done. You don't have to worry or wonder uh, if God is going to point his finger at you and say, you know, your sin, your sin, your sin. All of your sin was placed on Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. And by believing in him, by placing your faith in Christ, your sin was judged and it was taken care of. And now the righteousness of Christ has been imputed or given to you. And when God sees you, he sees you as righteous as his son. So what's this judgment? If it's not a judgment for our sin, what's it a judgment for? This judgment is one that could happen today. It is a judgment that occurs after the rapture. After the rapture. And it is Jesus basically taking uh, all of us believers from earth and judging us, not for our sin, but judging our good deeds, judging our deeds for rewards. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment of rewards for the Christian. Paul uses uh, a word here that says that um, we must all stand before the judgment seat. The word in Greek is bema, bema, um, B-E-M-A. You might transliterate it in English, bema. And in the Roman culture, the bema was a raised platform. In fact, Kathy and I have been to Corinth, and this is written to the Corinthians. And so this very place in Corinth is the bema. It's the judgment seat. In fact, I'll show you a close-up. You can't see it with this picture, but a close-up. They actually have in Greek on top bema and then the transliteration right below this. But that uh, they actually know where the Bema is in Corinth. And the Apostle Paul was very familiar with this because he stood in front of this Bema, we're told in Acts 18, before Galileo. And so the Corinthians were very familiar with this Bema seat. It was a judgment seat used by officials in judicial matters. And so for Paul to refer to this Bema, which they would have known, it's right in the marketplace. I mean, they walked by it every single time they walked through this market. They would have had a visual picture. In fact, every time they walked through the market having read 2 Corinthians, they would have thought, hmm, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So it was a visual reminder of them, for them, uh, to apply the text that we're going to, the applications that we'll be looking through. Um, we're also told that Christ stood before the judgment seat of Pilate. If you go to Jerusalem today, 
and right by the Jaffa Gate, there is what's called the Citadel or the Tower of David. It was Herod's palace or the Praetorium. And as soon as Herod died, all the procurators or the governors that began to reign began living in the best place there was to live, and that was Herod's palace. So Pontius Pilate lived in the Praetorium, which basically covers the ground there by the Jaffa Gate of the Citadel. And that's where Jesus stood before the Bema of Pilate, the judgment seat of Pilate. Paul goes on to say that this Bema, or this... uh, judgment seat, that we will all appear for a purpose, so that, here's the purpose, each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body. Recompense is a pretty good translation. You might say that that each person is going to be repaid in proportion to the things done in this life. It was sort of a technical term. I say sort of. It was a technical term uh, used of receiving wages, recompensed. And notice each one, each one, it says. Um, You won't be standing there with me. I won't be standing there with you. Each one. It is an individual judgment. It's not like Jesus is going to come and stand up here and just say, okay, we're going to take care of everybody all at once here and go through this judgment. It is an individual judgment. Each one will stand. And an interesting question, though, if the judgment seat of Christ relates only to Christians and it's only for rewards, why the phrase good or bad? That they should be recompensed according to what he has done, he or she has done, whether good or bad. The, the The bad here, the good and bad here are not referring to deeds of morality per se, but rather of um, potential reward to the value of the deed. That's, that's the, the phrase I'm looking for. The good or the bad refers not to the morality of the deed, but what is the deed worth, the value of the deed. So the recompense basically for the bad done is a loss of reward, which is what, which is what we'll see here in just a minute. Okay? So now, this is 2 Corinthians, and we got one verse on this, and that's because in 1 Corinthians, he gave us a little bit more on this judgment. So turn back, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we get a fuller explanation of this. 1 Corinthians 3, you can sort of think of this as, you know that game show where you were supposed to pick you know, curtain number one, curtain number two, curtain number three, and you didn't know what was behind the curtain. I mean, it could be a, a toothbrush or a, a trip to Maui. You had no idea what was behind the curtain. You just, it was random chance. But here, with this in our lives, it's not a matter of chance, but of choice. You get to choose what's behind the curtain by the life that you live. The bad decisions cost you a reward that you could have had. 1 Corinthians 3, look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation, very clearly we're told here, is Jesus Christ. 
The focus for the Christian, then, is to watch how he or she builds on that foundation. And he's going to go on and give a, a, a metaphor here about basically a building materials for a home. You've got the foundation, you've got uh, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. You've got these various pieces that could contribute to a home. And the point is that the quality of the building must be the same quality as the foundation, which is Jesus. And of these six materials that we'll look at, only half of them stand up under the test. Look at verse 12 now. Paul writes, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work or literally will test of what sort each man's work is. The quality. A um, couple of weeks ago, I guess maybe three or four weeks ago now, I, was, I walked into our bathroom. I was about to go to meet somebody in town and I walked into our bathroom and you look up and I saw water dripping from our ceiling. That's not a good sign. Water dripping from our ceiling. So, you know, and I know the water heater's right up right above it. So I rushed up to the, up to where the water heater was and I look at it and lo and behold, you know, it's uh, it's the water heater's busted and it's busted in such a way that it wasn't that the pan wasn't draining. The pan was draining, but it was spraying out the front the little front thingy, it was spring. <laughs> That's a technical term, you know. So, you know, I turn, turn off the main water and I get it all, I mean, you know, it, it, it's never a convenient time for the water heater to go out. And I thought, I just changed this thing, or I felt like I just changed this thing. So I, um, after I got back, I looked and found, you know, the information on it, and I called the company and said, you know, what's the warranty on this? I know I just recently bought this. And they said, well, actually, you know, it's a six-year warranty, and you bought it six years ago. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's the thing. It's, it sounds bad, but it was six years ago to the day. <laughs> to the day. How do, you, how do you make stuff up like that? <laughs> to the day. And so the lady on the, on the phone said, you know what? You called me to the day. We're gonna we're gonna honor that warranty. And she's and, but you know there was there's a little bit of a gotcha to it because they re required an upgrade. But I got a brand new water heater for seventy five dollars and another six year warranty on it. But here's the point: the the quality of of that water heater. Um, they don't build them like they used to. I guess that's sort of my point. I mean, they, they got that thing right up to the moment. If I hadn't called on the very day that it went out, then, it, uh, then we would have been paying for a brand new water heater. The quality, it was tested and it was found wanting, you might say. You know, every time you buy something now, they're trying to get you to do an extended warranty. Because, you know, it's not going to last, whatever it is. Whether it's a car or a radio, there's an extended warranty option. And they capitalize on your fear 
you know, that it's not going to work. You know, do you want to buy extended warranty? If you don't, you know, it's kind of, it's your risk to do it or not. Because the quality is not what it used to be. There used to be no need for extended warranties. We are told that there is a day coming which 2 Corinthians calls the judgment seat of Christ that will test each Christian's deeds. Now, the word that's used here for test in verse 13. You see the word test in English, and, you know, we just think it says test. But in the original language, there's a couple different words for the word test. Now, let's talk about those, because they're helpful for us here in the Christian life. The, the first word that I'll mention to you is called perazzo. This is a test that shows weakness. Generally speaking, it shows it's a test to reveal a weakness or a point of failure. This is what happens when General Motors tests Fords. When General Motors or GM tests Fords on the commercial, its goal is to reveal Ford's weakness to convince you to buy a GM. It's intended to do that. In the New Testament, Satan always uses this verb, or I should say that the New Testament writers always refer to this particular verb when Satan tests us. In fact, it's often translated tempts for that very reason, because Satan's goal in tempting is to get you to fail. That's the purpose of the test, is your failure. This is the word perazzo. Now, there's a second word. Dakimazo. It has as its goal to test something to show its strength. Not its failure, but its success. Its strength. This is what happens when GM tests GM cars to show that, that they'll stand up under the test. It's the purpose of approval. It's this second word, dakimazo, that Paul uses here. It's relevant because when you think about standing before the judgment seat of Christ, Christ's purpose in the test is that you be approved. Not to show your failure, but to show your success. Christ's goal in that judgment, you don't have to fear it. He's not going to stand up there and say, here's everything you did wrong. He's standing up there to show that that this test will happen according to all the deeds of your life to show your strength and what God has done through you. Um, Now, look for a moment at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. Just right across the page, probably, or turn a page. 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 4. Paul says, I'm conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So I want to mention a couple of lessons for you as we make our way through this text today. And here's the first one. Here's the lesson number one. In your life, focus on the quality of your deeds, and quality is determined by motive. Focus on the quality of your deeds, 
and quality is determined by motive. We just read in chapter 4 that the motive of men's hearts will be revealed. It will be disclosed. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Even the Apostle Paul didn't assume that his motives were always good. He said back in verse 4, I'm, I'm conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, I don't know of anything uh, of a motive that's not good. But he says, um, yet I'm not by this acquitted. It's possible that you know, I have mixed motives and don't know it. And the Lord is ultimately the one who's going to separate those wheat, that wheat from the tears. And it's the judgment seat of Christ that that kind of judgment occurs. Uh, this really brings us into direct conflict with our culture because our culture is all focused on quantity. How much have you done? It's not focused on quality. Just ask the homeowner who just reinstalled a water heater after six years. Quality is not, uh, not the priority. It's, it's quantity. How many people do you have at your church? How much money do you make? Um, you know, how many cars do you have in the driveway? It, the, the focus is all external. It's what you can see. It's what's impressive. But God instead looks at the heart. It's not numbers. It's not the outside. It's the inside. It's motive. The judgment seat of Christ doesn't look at the fact that you won a thousand people to Jesus Christ. What was your motive? Now, they're saved just the same, and that's great. But what's your motive in doing that? That's what we will be judged for. Any of you don't answer out loud, but any of you have parents who nitpicked every fault? Um, you know, you grow up, and then maybe you have a boss that does the same. We call them micromanagers, where they're just looking over your shoulder and nitpicking everything you do and finding everything you do. It stifles all creativity, and it creates an atmosphere where in walking around you can always hear the thin ice cracking under your feet. You just never know what the next step is going to be, and you're going to plunge to the bottom of the cold water. I love it that Jesus never led like that. Jesus gave freedom to learn. And can I say it without sounding unorthodox? Jesus gave freedom to fail. Because you see him doing it. You see him, you see him allowing it in his disciples' lives. Because Jesus saw a weakness or even a failure as an opportunity to learn. Remember what he told Peter. Peter, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. But I have prayed for you. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus saw Peter's failure not as a failure end of story, but as a moment of learning. And from that point, then Peter would be strengthened to go on in the future. Jesus' goal for his apostles was success. When he tested them, it was not to test them so that ultimately they would fail. Perazzo. It was to test them to show their strength or their ultimate success. Dakimazo. And that's the kind of judgment seat of Christ that we'll see, we will see one day. Jesus hasn't changed. His motive for our lives 
hasn't changed. His tests are brought about in our lives to show our success. You can see a great example of this with what the Lord did with Abraham in Genesis 22. In fact, Genesis 22 begins with the the phrase, I forget exactly how it's said, but it said, after this, God tested Abraham. And, of course, that's Hebrew, this is Greek, but it's the same idea that the purpose of that test was to show Abraham's strength. And it did. It did show Abraham's strength. He passed with flying colors. Whenever you come to a situation in your life that the Lord is testing you, His goal for you is not to cause you to fail. Um, I think James is the one that said when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. The word there, perazzo. God is not tempting me to fail. God never does that, James says. And that's... That we need to remember that when we're in, uh, in those situations. Jesus' goal was our success. Um, this week, as I was reading the Bible, I came across a couple of great... I'm reading back through Romans again, and isn't Romans a great book? Such a great book. And so keep your hand in 1 Corinthians. We'll come back to it. But I want to show you just a couple of really great passages in Romans as we think about this context. Romans 5... I'll have you turn to Romans 5 and then back up one verse into chapter 4. So it's actually Romans 4.25. Romans 4.25 says this. I love these verses. Jesus, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. In other words, we sinned, and that is why Jesus died, We are forgiven. That is why Jesus was raised. If you ever wonder if your sins are forgiven, look at the empty tomb. He was raised because of our justification. Because it's a done deal. You're justified if you've believed. Keep going. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we have peace, present tense, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, present tense, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. So we look forward to the glory of God. We're not fearing it, but we're looking forward to it. So there's point number one. Think about this in relation to your upcoming judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. You have been justified, and having been justified by faith, you have peace with God. That's not going to change the moment you die. It is a present and eternal reality. You have peace with God. You have peace with God because of Jesus Christ. Okay, turn a couple of more chapters over and look at the end of chapter 7. As Dr. Toussaint has taught us many times, the method of justification is the method of sanctification, and you see the same thing happening here at the end of chapter 7. Paul goes in chapter 7 and he talks about this, this challenge that, that he doesn't want to do what he does. He hates sinning because the inside of him, he loves the law of the Lord, and yet there's this part of him, his sinful nature, his flesh, that hates sin. And so he concludes chapter 7, verse 24, by saying, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand I find find myself 
with my mind I am serving the law of God, one on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Keep going. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Both of these passages that we just read, what was true of you in justification, that is that you placed your faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins, now there will be no more judgment for you because of your sin, you are justified. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. The same is true of you in the Christian life in which you live. Your, your method of justification by grace through faith is your method of sanctification by grace through faith. This challenge that Paul is so well expresses, and I'm so glad Romans 7 is in the Bible. Otherwise, you'd see Paul as this stained glass saint who never struggled. But Romans 7 talks about this inner tension of loving God and at the same time really struggling against the flesh, which we all know so well. What's the solution to this? The solution to this, as Romans 8 goes on, is, is um, setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. But my point in bringing this up here in the context of the judgment seat of Christ is verse 1 and 2. There is now no condemnation. No condemnation. And what is true of you now is going to be true of you when you die. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, so turn back to 1 Corinthians. And let's look at Paul's metaphor a little closer. He's talked about building on the foundation with all these materials, costly materials, some that aren't that costly. If you've ever seen a house burn flat to the ground, you notice there's only two things that remain, or there used to be two things that remain before chimneys were made out of plywood. Um, there's the foundation and there's the chimney, right? And the reason that those two things remained is because basically they were of the same essence. The fire tested that house, if we can use uh, Paul's metaphor. It's a great metaphor. A fire thoroughly tests the building materials of a house. And if it's, if it's flammable, it goes up. If it's not flammable, it remains. This is his point when he uses this metaphor of a house. Look at verse uh, 14. 1 Corinthians 3.14. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains... He, will, he shall receive a reward. How does it remain? When we think about the judgment seat of Christ, what remains is if in that thorough testing of what you've done in this life, if you did it with motives, remember, it's about your motive. If you did it with the right motive, it remains. It's like the costly materials that he mentions here that fire can't affect, gold, silver, and stones. It doesn't burn up. It doesn't burn up. He shall receive a reward. So what you do with right motives in this life, you receive a reward at the judgment seat of Christ. But look at verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. The New International Version sort of paraphrases it in a helpful way. It says, as one escaping through the flames. In other words, there's, a, there's a, a loss, but it is a loss of reward. It is not a loss of salvation, which Paul 
thankfully goes on to make very clear, he himself shall be saved. Now, some look at this verse as the only verse in the New Testament for purgatory, which is sort of a, I mean, if you've got to stick it somewhere, I guess this is the place to push it. But, you know, purgatory is a time of punishment for unconfessed sin or whatever until somehow you've worked it out on your own, which you couldn't do in this life. I'm not sure how that works out. But first of all, it contradicts a couple things. Justification by faith shows there's now, now no condemnation. So there's no need to try to have purification after death. And also Paul's teaching that when you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. And I'm probably pretty sure the Lord's not in purgatory. (laughs) Pretty sure about that. So notice also that the work is burned up, not the person. This is not a salvation judgment. And, And again, he's speaking in metaphor. You know, sometimes we have no problem with the metaphor of, um, of, of a foundation. Christ is the foundation, okay. You know, gold, silver, costly stone, that represents the quality of our motives in life. But all of a sudden we get to fire and we think, oh, that's literal fire. This is a metaphor of, of the thoroughness of the testing. The fire is talking about uh, the thoroughness of the judgment. It's not talking about the results of the judgment, but the thoroughness of it. Just, just as, is, as if fire would have its way with a house, so God is going to be that thorough. Jesus is going to be that thorough at the judgment seat of Christ in judging your motives. And of course, it should be said that no one is perfect, Paul included. We will all have potential rewards that we lost, all of us. But all will have some rewards. So don't be afraid to think, you know, my whole life's been pretty much a waste. When I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to say, you know what? You don't get nothing. I'm sorry, but come on in. <laughs> the text says, he shall receive a reward in 1 Corinthians 3.14. And then four, chapter 4, verse 5 says, each man's praise will come from God. Every person gets something. There is something you have done as a Christian that will be rewarded. If you wonder that, look again very carefully at 1 Corinthians 3.14 and 1 Corinthians 4.5. He shall receive a reward. Each man's praise will come from God. You might jot in the margin just to look at at a later point, but you remember the story, the parable that Jesus told in Matthew 25 where you've got the parable of the talents where you've got one, one guy was given five talents, another was given two, another was given one. The guy with one didn't really do any much with it, so he wasn't given any reward at all. Of course, he represents one who's not even a believer. But you've got the five-talent person and the two-talent person, and if you'll notice in Matthew 25, the one that was given five talents and the one that was given two talents have the exact same commendation. Exact, word-for-word commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. So it doesn't matter if you have five or if you have two. You will get the exact same commendation. Um, and so also, if you're wondering, you know, am I going to hear those, those words? I heard a lot of times in my life somebody saying, boy, I sure hope that I will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You will. If you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have done at least something with a right motive, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians that each man will get his praise from God, you're going to hear it. 
You're going to hear it. You have that to look forward to. His praise from God. Can you imagine God giving you praise? In other words, commendation. That's going to be great. Isn't that going to be great? It's a testing to show approval. It's a testing to show approval. He shall receive a reward. Now, shall tells us a couple things. One, it tells us it's future. And that's essential for you and I to remember. We want that reward now. We want God to bless us for our good work now. We want some kind of recompense now. But Jesus says, it, uh, Paul says, it will come. Each man's praise will come. He shall receive a reward. It's future. But it's also a promise. It's not only future, it's also a promise. He shall receive. He will receive from the Lord. I read about a missionary named uh, Henry Morrison. He was a missionary in Africa. After 40 years of service in Africa, he headed home. He headed home actually by boat and happened to be riding back to America on the same boat with Teddy Roosevelt. And when they landed in New York, everyone was shouting about Teddy Roosevelt. And Henry was like, he was sort of thinking, well, you know, 40 years of service in Africa, shouldn't I get, you know, at least somebody to say something? After returning home. And then Henry said, basically, it was as if this little voice told him inside, Henry, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. So as you long for this commendation from Christ, remember, you're not home yet. It's coming. It's a promise. It's certain. And the purpose of that testing is not to show your failure. It's to show your strength. It's to give you rewards. It's something that you can look forward to. It's not something that you can dread. Well, just before I pray and uh, dismiss us, I want to read a paraphrase from the Living Bible of Hebrews chapter 6. So go ahead and zip up. Now's the time. <laughs> By that, I mean your Bible. If you don't know what I mean. <laughs> Get all fully zipped and ready to go. <laughs> but let's bow, let's bow for prayer, and I want to begin reading, begin our prayer by just reading this paraphrase, great paraphrase, of Hebrews 6, verses 10 through 12. God is not unfair. How can he forget the way you used to show your love for him and still do by helping his children? And we are anxious that you keep right on loving others as long as life lasts, so that you will get your full reward. Then, knowing what lies ahead for you, you won't become bored with being a Christian, nor become spiritually dull and indifferent. But you will be anxious to follow the example of those who receive all that God has promised them because of their strong faith and patience. Hebrews 6, 10 to 12. Our Father, our reward is giving you glory. And so to imagine that we would stand before the judgment seat of Christ 
and receive what we are fully not worthy to receive, a commendation from our Lord. Uh, we are thankful and we are eager. We look forward to that even more than a graduation ceremony or a wedding or anything else that the best of this life has to offer. We're eager for that time. Just between us, each one will stand. This personal moment that we have looking forward to being with Jesus Christ and to hear him say, well done. That each of us who have placed our faith in Christ will receive a reward and a commendation and praise from God. But it's possible, Lord, in this room that there is someone who has not placed their faith in Christ. For whatever reason, they've put it off or they've come out of curiosity or out of politeness and invitation. And if they were to think, if they were to answer why they should be allowed to go into heaven, they could point to nothing but a life of good deeds. A life of good deeds earns no reward when it comes to salvation. Pray that you would open their heart to believe that Jesus died for their sins and that they would embrace that forgiveness and enjoy the truth of what we read in Romans, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for those of us, Father, many of us who are in Christ Jesus and who rest in that wonderful peace that we have with God and, and have no condemnation in our lives and in our hearts because of Christ, we eagerly look forward to the rapture and then following to this judgment seat of Christ, which is a time of great reward and encouragement. What a great way to enter heaven. What a great way to begin our eternal state of, of being with Christ than to have a one-on-one -on -one time with him of reward. Thank you for that hope, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>